This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Existential today on the podcast, I have my friend Jer Swigert, who did I say your last name right, by the way? Swigert. Uh, Close, yeah. I want I want to say swagger, but I don't. I know, to... I know. Hey, you know, I, I, I got to create a little bit of distance from the swagger. <laughs> is that and so? I've been, the I'm, swagger that's, branding. <laughs> that's me trying to, you know, give you that benefit of the doubt, right? But uh, <laughs> so this is my friend uh, Jer. We actually met at uh, a taping with with our mutual friend Ben McBride, um, and we were there talking about belonging and what it looks like to like you know to to have people from all different walks of life belong and. Our friend uh, Linda Sarsour was uh, a part of that conversation that we had. So, uh, so we and we talked there, you know, quite a bit, which I thought was cool. We we just had this this sort of interesting connection, that probably because we both came out of or been a part of evangelical, you know, church in America. So, dude, welcome. Thanks for coming on on the podcast. Man, I'm humbled, especially in this moment in time, to be here with you, Corey. For sure. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Well, in this moment in time, we've had we we're we're now at the time of recording this, we're coming off of two. Uh, debates, one the presidential debate, the other the VP debate from last night with Flygate and everything else that came out of that. Like, what are some of your thoughts on all all of that? Going back to last week, I'm sure, I mean, because I've actually heard that anxiety has been up for people since last week's debate with the president and, and, uh, you know, and, and... And Joe Biden. So, what, what what have you experienced? What have you felt? What well, I'm hearing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I feel like first and foremost, I want to comment on the optics of two old white guys on a stage, you know, and in, in a moment of uh, I don't know, a moment in time where I think so much of the last three or four years have felt like I think so much back backstepping in terms of progress with regard to human rights at a at a basic level. Just to see two white old, old white guys on a stage, I think was um, it was disappointing to me, and uh, and I and and I think probably does add to some of the anxiety that folks feel. Obviously, I think the the presidential debate it, it was embarrassing, uh, honestly, to behold. And um, and but where I, I felt like it was loudest was with regard to white supremacy and the way that that um, mm-hmm. that that uh, that was addressed, uh, the the way that Proud Boys were deputized, uh, and the way that national law enforcement were all wrapped in as. Uh, enthusiastically behind the idea of the racial, the, uh, the racial ideologies of this president and his, uh, his administration. And so I, I live, I mean, I'm, I'm right now sitting on um, the ancestral land of the Northern Paiute in, in central Oregon in a state that has ever been a, an experiment in white supremacy. And in the last three months, we've been facing off with the Proud Boys and white supremacist militia groups on a weekly basis. And so mm. when I heard what the president's what the president was saying and literally hearing him identify proud boys and telling them to stand back and, and stand by um, that raised um, that raised my awareness significantly because uh, I know these people's names um, I, I stand across the street from many of them and I knew that he deputized them and uh, mm. and so mm. in w- within days of uh, of that happen actually I think within 24 48 hours the proud boys had changed their 
their patch and their logo with his instructions on them. And we received word that they were coming to town. Uh, and so some of mm -hmm. that then did happen on Saturday. And so we went from bait stage on, uh, uh, you know, la last week to the Proud Boys in my city uh, this Saturday. And, and it got violent. Guns were drawn and wow. tasers were deployed and bear spray was sprayed. And it was intense, you know. That's, that's amazing, bro. Because it's the interesting thing about all of this is that you, whenever, whenever I hear rhetoric from such a powerful place like the White House or a debate stage, um, I, I'm always thinking about the real, real-time, in-person ramifications of those things, like how they actually affect an actual human being or a group of human beings. And it's interesting to hear you talk about how a day or two after the, yeah. the this 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 sort of dog whistle, I don't even know if I call it dog whistle, this alarm goes off for the Proud Boys, they are they are acting. They're acting right in they're, 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 Yes. And they're not, they're not acting at a, a, you know, a messaging, like let's, you know, at, at a social media level, they're acting in a bodily physical, like let's move into these spaces and, and, and put on display what we think is our dominance. Right. And, and, but that's, you know, Corey, you, and you and I have talked about this a lot, like the words of the president have had tangible implications, especially on our most vulnerable communities. Mm -hmm. And um, and the big wake-up call, I think, for uh, that I want to invite the my white relatives into is that the words of the president don't tend to impact us on a bodily level, right? Mm -hmm. uh, until we become the kinds of white allies who understand what it means to absorb violence on behalf of the communities that have been marginalized. So the more that we start to get proximate to the people who are actually in pain, we begin to recognize that words spoken on a debate stage have real life imp implications, especially for our BIPOC sisters and brothers. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so, yeah, this isn't like and, and I, I, I hear white folk quibble all the time around. Well, it's just words. And, you know, it's just his Twitter account. No, you and I both know people who are no longer alive today because of a tweet. Yeah. Right. Like this stuff has real existential implications. And, and I yeah. saw that this weekend. Dude, so you were you, you know, Proud Boys by name. You've stood across from them. You've been like face to face with them. What are those experiences like? And I, and I love that you you know you sort of bring up this um, this advocacy where it's not just I tweeted something, I bought a T-shirt, um, but I actually put my body in harm's way, like remove my body from safety. I, I want I, I just want to park there for a second because you're talking about not like not like William Wallace from you know uh, Braveheart is is called into battle for his own people. You're talking about like my body is actually safe and I don't have a dog in the fight except for the dog I put in the fight, which is to say morally and from a place, a deep place of what I believe to be true about human humanity, I have to put my body in harm's way mm -hmm. for other people. Mm -hmm. And I do that. I, right. I just, I first want to pause and say, dude, that's, that is such a, a statement I think um, that you're mm -hmm. making but I also would love to hear about more of that experience. I know that like when you and I first talked about doing this recording, you had been a part of the demonstrations in Portland. And so I just wanted to hear you describe what that's like for you 
again, being that, you know, you are a white cisgendered male. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, so like there's, in in many ways, the United States is your oyster. Oyster, you yeah, know, like totally, so, totally, you know, so for you to jump yeah. in this, what's that been like for you? Yeah, I, I mean, the, I, I think it's friendships with people like you, Corey, and and Ben, Ben and Linda, and I could name dozens of others um, whose experience of being American uh, is completely different than mine. It's it's your accompaniment that has actually helped me understand that. Yeah, I actually do have a dog in the fight. You know, like. Um, we are in we are interdependent and my like i am less human if i am not in a flourishing relationship with you and if we are not together figuring out what it means to usher in the world that god is making right and so the idea that as white folk we don't have a dog in the fight we've been duped into believing that and um and that is an unfortunate myth it's an unfortunate deception uh that is is causing the demise of way too many people who don't look like me you know, and so I do have a dog in the fight. And I think my learning journey over the last 15 years is, is helping me understand. Yeah, absolutely. I do. And so when folk are in pain, my faith compels me to position myself alongside of them, uh, not in the form of charity, but definitely in the form of solidarity. And so, um, so yeah, I, I mean, part, part of my, um, part of my experience mo most recently has been understanding what it means to absorb the violence of the systems that whiteness has made that, um, mm. that brothers and sisters like you have had to absorb for generations, Corey. And, mm. um, and I, I, I don't, I'm not offering that up as like, and therefore I feel really great about myself. No, like that's the next step of my transformation, you know, and, and it's, it's overdue. And, um, and I lament the fact that it took me, you know, it took me 30 plus years to get there. And, um, but, uh, you know, I mean, Oregon, Oregon is a unique state. And, and what, like I mentioned earlier, since the inception of this upper left corner of the United States, this has been, uh, the, the dream has been that it would be a white utopia. And so the, the policy that shaped the state disallowed people of color from living in this place. Right. Wow. And so, um, and so like the, it's not just that white supremacy is kind of like seasoning what happens in the state of Oregon. It was the actual soil that the state grew out of. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, there's a misconception I think about Portland is that it's just this, uh, you know, this progressive bastion on the upper left side. There's a, there's a thriving community of color that now lives there and, uh, and they're tired of being, uh, occupied by white made systems, uh, in particular mm -hmm. law enforcement. And uh, there's a huge history of severe police brutality against people of color in, in the, the city of Portland. And so, um, I mean, the story in short is that you know, since George Floyd, there were like a hundred consecutive nights of protests in Portland. Uh, and it was actually dwindling when Trump made his executive, uh, his executive order to send federal troops over to Portland. It was a, from our point of view, it was, it was a government charade. It was a, it was a play, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, it was a flexing of some kind of fear-based muscle to send federal troops to a dwindling protest in Portland. And, uh, and so, of course, federal troops show up. And these are BORTAC agents. These are like, these are Border Patrol agents that are like their special ops guys. And, uh, and so they, they show up and, uh, and they begin to coordinate with, with the, the Portland Police Bureau. And, of course, that accelerates back up the protests. And things got very violent night after night after night. And so I'm a part of a statewide clergy collective, and they invited a, a number of us to come to 
Portland to participate in a bit of a sacred ritual that was facilitated by our Jewish sisters and brothers, and then to be uh, a nonviolent, disciplined and nonviolent presence and witness to what was going to happen that particular night. And uh, and so I showed up and the invitation was show up, but make sure you got eye protection, you've got a helmet, make sure you've got a high powered gas mask because it will go down here. And, uh, and Corey, I mean, it, the, the sacred ritual was unbelievable. And mm. um, it was a lament that things are not yet as they should be. And then we moved our way over to the chants of the abolition and we were singing and we were dancing in the streets. There was zero violence. There were about a thousand protesters there. And uh, as we're singing the songs of the abolition, the loudspeakers begin to say, this has been deemed a riot if you don't stop throwing things and, and squirting chemicals on us and things like that, um, we will deploy. And within 15 seconds, if you go to my Facebook page, you can see this. Within 15 seconds, the federal troops storm out and they begin dropping gas um, at, at a volume that was choking through our masks. They began to indiscriminately fire non-lethal rounds into the crowd, flashbang grenades, uh, and for the next six hours, it was a show of, 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 of force and violence by the state the likes of which I've never experienced before. So let me get this yeah. straight. You, see, you you go to a sacred ritual as clergy. Um, it's about peacemaking. It is about contending for the world that's not yet the, the better world that we that were all, I think, sort of talking about. And federal police show up and break the thing up and start firing into the crowd, non-lethal and gas and all those sorts of things that escalated thing to violence. So it wasn't that you and the folks you were there with were like attacking them. They attacked you. Right. So like, if you go to my, if you go to my Facebook page and scroll down a little bit, you, you literally see like from, from the chants and the dancing to immediately clouds of gas toxic gas being dispensed on us. I got shot twice, one with a, a with a non-lethal round and one with a gas canister. I was actually able to retrieve both items. So I have them as souvenirs, right? Like not just the bruises, but the actual rounds I have. And, uh, you know, I, and I'm, I'm in full on clergy gear, right? I'm, I'm, I'm standing next to a clergy sister who's holding up a sign that says love wins. And it had seven bullet holes in it by the end of the evening. Oh my gosh. Right. And, and so like, and, and I'm not saying like in every protest, there are people who are there to monopolize on the protest to shake things up. Absolutely. But the, but the indiscriminate use of violence against nonviolent protesters took my breath away. And, uh, and, and then two weeks later they came to my town, which is, which is a whole nother story. Yeah. Well, we need to hear that story, but I, here's what I, I want to do before we hear that story is I'd like to hear you make the distinction between um, a faith-based um, presence at a demonstration like yours versus what we've seen with some evangelicals who show up um, at, at, at the in Minnesota, for instance, to play worship songs and sing and baptize yeah. BLM, you know, demonstrators. Like what... What's the distinction? And I and I and I don't, I don't ask this for the sake of like even making fun of or poking at. I ask it for the sake of the idea of deeply spiritual movement in the middle of a social uprising 
So you, you talk about clergy and you talk about, you know, people who are sort of stewards of a tradition of faith. I'm curious what it looks like, because I've seen the other side, what it looks like for you to show up um, bringing some sense of spiritual richness to a, a movement like that, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah. And I don't even, no, I don't even like making it. a distinction, to be honest. Like, 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 like they're different. Yeah. Like there's this social thing and there's a spiritual thing. It's all, you know, that. But I just, I want to hear you talk about that because yeah. I, yeah. I sense no, that there's more to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thanks for the question. I don't know if I've had the opportunity to to riff on on that a little bit. Um, so let me let me think out loud with you. I yeah. What imme- what immediately came to mind, Core, when you asked the question is um, is Jesus teaching, uh, and I come from the Jesus tradition, and and mm-hmm. so like I, I center Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as like the fuel behind my work, and mm-hmm. and uh, and I think his work began with that that Isaiah scroll in, in a synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter four, where Jesus reads out of Isaiah 61 and says, like the things that are broken are going to be remade. Now the Mm -hmm. kingdom that God is bringing means that broken stuff is going to get fixed and thus faithfulness to that, like allegiance to that kingdom means that we participate with our lives, with our bodies in that kind of work. And then what came to my mind next is, uh, is all of those moments in the, in the prophets, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, where God says to the prophets, I'm sick of your damn songs. I'm sick of your, I'm sick of your rituals because all you're trying to do is, is seduce my affection. Mm. And do you, do you want my affection? Care for the widow. Take care of the orphan. Welcome the stranger. Do you want my affection? Stop singing and start absorbing the violence of systems that are crushing people, mm. right? And so, like, mm. w- when I see when I see Christian folks showing up to protests with their guitars and, and singing and all the things, um, I think it's probably on the one hand there's it's well intentioned, and on the other hand, I think it's a display of power. I think it's a misconception, a misunderstanding of how broken systems get changed. Like broken systems aren't going to get changed just because a bunch of folks suddenly like, you know, give some kind of mental assent to the superiority of a particular kind of God. Broken stuff's going to get fixed when we, all of us together in all of our various different kinds of backgrounds actually get to work in remaking the world. Yeah. Right. And and so now Jesus, like my deep seated, um, belief in, in the person of Jesus does not drive me to sing songs at the protest. It drives me to place my body in front of folk who have been marginalized and terrorized by systems that have benefited me for generations, right? The most, the most, the most faithful thing I can do as a follower of Jesus. If I, if I, if I look at a Jesus who was a dark skinned Palestinian Jewish revolutionary who died as a political enemy, and then got back up to usher in a better way, right? It means that Christian faithfulness doesn't look like singing a song. It looks like Jesus who absorbed violence for the sake of liberation. Yeah, man. Right? And so yeah. I guess that's how I'd interact with that a bit. I love I love the distinction. I, I love the distinction you made. I also love that you connected it to that sacred text about, uh, was it Amos, that talked about, you know, I hate your songs, Basically, yeah. like you know, that, that to to perform 
justice was um, how we connected to God, right? And, and how we treated one another and how do we respond when there's something broken in our world? Do we ignore it or do we go to fix it? Or worse yet, do we actually contribute to um, right. its continued brokenness, right? right. And, and this is right. what I've been lamenting lately is how much I've seen um, from white evangelical Christianity, how much I've seen, not just that a lot of them have been reluctant to speak out or or act, um, you know, to condemn white supremacy, but how much they're actually cooperating with it, how much they are actually preaching and teaching and and posting and sharing in ways that reinforce that structure. And one of the ways that, that I've seen that, and I'd love to hear you talk about this, is in the conversation about prayer once the president came forward and said that he had COVID-19, that there were black folks praying, I believe the, the terms impregatory prayers, um, that are prayers of David, that are, you know, that have this this rich tradition of not not even from a place of malice, but from a place of God show us that people do indeed reap what they sow. Right. And right. people like saying to to black folks who who had that position that we were wrong and that that you sh- you shouldn't think that way. You shouldn't be the way. Here's how you should pray for someone. Like have you experienced any of that or seen any of that dialogue? What are your thoughts on this whole like, you know, love your enemy? Pray for those, you know, all the all the all the things that we have to wrestle with. What are, where where do you fall on that? Where do you where do you how yeah. do you wrestle with that? Yeah, man. I I mean, I mean, Corey. Honestly, I I'm working really hard right now in one particular case study, in, in a back and forth with a white evangelical pastor to understand. Like, I really, really mm. am working hard to understand where they're coming from. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm at a place where I'm like, I'm not sure if I've ever understood where, where they're coming from because they would, I, I want to start first with your earlier comments. Like I, from, from your and my perspective, it is, there, there is a blatant white supremacy that undergirds their theology. And that comes out of their mouths when they teach and their lives when they lead and, mm. you know, all, and all of these things to them they're, they're not whites. They're not prone to white supremacy. They're simply faithful. Mm. Right. And so like, so so I, I, let me, let me put a pin in that by, by saying, okay, when I think about this conversation between like um, my black sisters and brothers who are praying, like may he reap what he sows and let it be a public example. Mm. (laughs) And my white Mm. sisters and brothers who are praying for their King to get better. Mm. Right. Uh, there, there, like what lies below that? And from my point of view, it's this idea that, like, for white evangelicals, the the the, the Christianity, the theology that washed up on our colonial shores, was not informed by the life, death, and teachings of Jesus. It was informed by imperial values and economic ideas of slave-based capitalism. Right. It, it was like the, the 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 faith that washed up on our shores here was an imperial religion that placed people who look like me in the seat of power and people who look like you in chains. 
Mm-hmm. And I just, and we justified it as, as uh, the Christian, like the, as it should be, it's, mm-hmm. it's the natural order of a God who created now the God who would create a system that places me in the throne and you in chains has to be a white male, violent God. Right. And so who, who a white male, violent God, uh, and therefore a Jesus who is a white savior, who, uh, who didn't say things like love your enemy uh, has to say things like destroy your enemy in, in the, in the accumulation and protection of your wealth, abundance and safety. Right. So like for white folk who view Trump as King, uh, it makes sense to them theologically because they have an imperial religion undergirded by a white male, violent God embodied by a white Eurocentric Jesus who, 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 um, endorses our protection of wealth, abundance, and safety. And so like, so then we're in the place of power and we're going to critique you, Corey, because you're saying, because you're, you're, you're coming at it from a place of oppression and occupation mm-hmm. saying like, Lord God, free us from our oppressor. And we're coming at it from the, this is our God appointed King, you know? And, and so like this, yeah. this is, so then that's why white, I hear white folk, I, I understand why my black uh, relatives are praying the prayer that they're praying. And I'm now actually in my theology and ethic in solidarity with you. And I also, I also make, it makes sense to me why white folk are critiquing you because the way that they read the scriptures, we're supposed to pray for our king, right? Like our God appointed king. We're supposed to pray for, for like the well-being of the power structure is more important to people who look like me than your liberation. That's just the way it, it's always been. And I, thi- I think yeah. this case study is actually vetting that out. It's putting it on display. And I think I could, um, I was telling a friend of mine not too long ago, I could, um, not a concession's not the word, but I, I, I could understand and even maintain a sense of respect for a person, a white person or any person really, who said that historically, there was a group of, of, of faith-based Christian or whatever you call them in the, in the Jewish uh, diaspora who believed that if Caesar was in charge, it must have been because God allowed Caesar to be in charge, right? So, so the, though they are tortured and, and though they have all these things going on, there is a group of people who like believe that part of their service to God was to endure this suffering because if, if, I'm, if I am suffering, it's because God wants me to suffer. If that is a theology that you hold to, that's like rooted in sort of, I've, I've studied it and read it. I can go, okay, cool. Like I get that, but that's not what we're hearing. What we're hearing is just this knee jerk. You have to pray for the president as if there is no nuance in it, as if there's never been prayers like what David prayed about his, his enemies as if, and again, and, and the other thing that you brought up that I think is really interesting that I don't know that a lot of people think about is, is also that Jesus had a dog in the fight. Jesus is a Jewish man, right? A Jewish rabbi. The, the traditions, the history, the, uh, the, way that the, the, the ways of doing things, the customs, were, they were all things that he cherished and held to. And I think so much of that is lost in what you described as like the Christianity that showed up here um, in the United States, 
is that the Jewishness of Jesus is washed away and all that's left is the power dynamic of this white Jesus who is at uh, best ambivalent when it comes to the suffering of black and brown indigenous people. Because he is removed from any sort of suffering that's other than the suffering on the cross for yours and my sins, but not any sort of suffering that's rooted in uh, a a hierarchical, uh, whatever word I'm trying to use, a a system that like oppresses some and elevates others. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's, it's unthinkable for white evangelicals to consider a Jesus who was a representative of an occupied and terrorized people group. Mm-hmm. And, and in part, like we could we could play that, give that lip service core, but like the reason that we can't fathom that is because we are we have never been proximate to that reality, never, mm-hmm. right? And so, like I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking a Jesus, a young Jesus who apprentices his dad, you know, who was a, a mason in Nazareth, which meant he probably spent the majority of his adult career rebuilding a city called Sepphoris that had been crushed by the empire because they got a little too revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like, this is, this is a city where no stone was left upon another and they, they crucified and lit on fire, 2000 men, women, and children. It lit up the night sky for like two weeks. This is the world that Jesus knew. Mm-hmm. Right. And if Jesus is apprenticing his dad in the remaking of that city, what do you think are the stories that they talk, they, they talked about? How do you think they, regarded the empire. How do you like, let's, let's undeify young prepubescent Jesus in the moment and, and go like bro, bro's listening in on the conversations of an occupied oppressed people who are his people who are being crushed by an oppressive force, by an empire. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. I, it makes me think yeah. about the time when a, a Mohican uh, pastor named Jim Bear Jacobs in Minneapolis, we were in a conversation together about the Bible uh, and he goes, Jared, you know what this is? And I said, that's a Bible. And he goes, he goes, yeah, this is, this is an indigenous manual written by occupied and oppressed people who are trying to sort out the complexities of the God life. He goes, the mistake that you've made is that you keep bringing this book to people who look like me saying, let me tell you what this says. He said, what you should be doing in order to get a more, a, a, a more legitimate grasp of a Jesus that's worth your life is you should be bringing this book to me saying, will you please help me understand what this says? 100%. 100%. That is the, that is the upside down kingdom as you know, people call it. That is the, what it, the entire thing is about that is about people who know what it is to suffer, who know what it is yeah. to have your ancestry be enslaved, yeah. have genocide committed against them, to be the underdogs, mm-hmm. to be the ones who don't have power, to be the ones who are struggling. And I love that, like, rather than trying to be missionaries all over the world and bring this good news of prosperity and God loves you and you can get to go to heaven to people all around the world, instead of trying to save your own souls, <laughs> like right. trying to get like a, a, an understanding of what it means to not be on top, because that is what Jesus is, was always trying to get people to understand. Right. Like, that's right. What it's that's like right. to be on the bottom. That's you know, right. that's oh, God. I love that. I love it so much, man. I, I could talk, we could talk about that for another six hours, but yeah. I did want to, um, I did want to hear you sort of talk to folks who, who may not be following you or your work. Um, Talk about Global Immersion, uh, which you are the co-founder of, uh, what you guys do, um, the the types of events that you have, the types of work that you're doing to 
uh, contend for a better world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. The Global Immersion Project is a peacemaking training organization. Uh, and uh, everything that we do is uh, designed to equip people of faith to engage our divided world in restorative ways. And so the conversation that we just had um, is core global immersion uh, mission. It, it's mm. helping folks who, uh, who have a, a Jesus orientation begin to recognize that your faith is not just about a one day, it's about right now, that God is remaking the world and we get to be a part of it. And we actually need to figure out how to do that. And so... Um, Pre-pandemic, uh, our expertise was really in immersive style learning. And what we wanted to do with, with dominant culture, people of faith, was expose them to the implications of our imperial theology. Mm -hmm. So these ideals that we hold, this, this theology and, and what we just got done talking about with regard to a, a, a white God and a white Jesus and an imperial theology has real negative, terrorizing, traumatizing, occupying, oppressive implications for people who are not white. And so we're finding that the transformation of dominant culture followers of Jesus into everyday peacemakers requires that we intentionally displace our, ourselves into proximity with people on the underside of power, on the underside of empire, and allow them to be our teachers and our guides. Transform us into women and men who understand how to join God and one another in remaking the world. Um, and so... In the pandemic, we do a ton. We host a ton of conversations with people like you, Coria, and others. Um, we do. We're, we're hosting all sorts of different kinds of workshops, especially in this ele election season. There's a um, there's a whole resource bundle that we put together called a Conflicted Allegiance, where we're really critiquing this cross and country ideology, which is which is idolatry, like this idea that like that. America is Christian, and the Christianizing of America Christianizes the world. It's a power over approach. And we also critique like the apolitical withdrawn type of mentality, um, seeing that as an embodiment of, pri of privilege. And we're asking the question, what does it mean to have our allegiance to Jesus and to the kingdom of Jesus and also leverage our citizenship in the United States on behalf of those who have been crushed, right? And yeah. so everything that we're doing is trying to reframe an understanding around Jesus and, and the world that Jesus dreamt about and began to usher in. Right. And uh, and so you can find us at globalimmerse.org. We're really excited. We just launched uh, a podcast, a peacemaking podcast. And it's just a bunch of stories from everyday people who, wherever they live, work and play, they're figuring out what it means to join in the restorative revolution that we're all a part of. And so it invites you to, to subscribe to that and start to start to listen in on the stories. That's very, very cool, bro. Thanks so much for taking the time to that sort of talk through this stuff with us today. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I always do. You know, these things like, yeah, like there's just a, there's a rabbit hole that you can go down and you continue to go down. And there's the, the question after that question, which is yeah. another question after that one. And, and, and I, what I appreciate about you is that you, um, you know, you're fuller, you've been, you've, you've done um, a tremendous amount of study um, and committed yourself to theological training formally, informally, and you hold it all very open-handedly, um, which I find to be true of a lot of people that like that really, it's all, I forget what that theory is where the more you know, the less certain you are versus yeah, like the right. less you know, like people just tend, tend yeah. to think they know everything. Um, and you're an example of someone that I've, that I've, that I've watched that like, I, I see you continue to learn and grow and grow and grow. And in that growing, you're not growing away from people it's sort of causing you to become more dependent on people, other people's stories, 
other people's experiences to complete the knowledge base. Mm-hmm. And that's so, I find that so, it seems that that's so hard for white men, especially to do because white men, as they learn, a lot of times you learn more and more and more and more, you get so smart and like, then you're just, uh, there, there's nothing you have to learn from anyone else because you're at the top of the food chain. Mm-hmm. So why would I ever go down there to do anything but teach them if I have yeah. time to? And I just appreciate yeah. that you yeah. you spend so much time trying to learn and grow uh, and, thanks, and be man. connected with people. So that's yeah. that's really well, awesome. Well, you're you're one of my guides for the journey, my friend. So thanks for what you're doing, and and I really appreciate. Uh, I'm humbled to be to be honest with you. Yeah, man. Thanks for thanks for stopping by, folks. That was uh, my friend Jer Swaggart, and you can, as he said, you can connect with him uh, through the Global Immersion Project. It's an amazing, amazing initiative. Uh, you can go check out that website. I'll make sure that those notes are in the show notes for you to check out. Also, uh, thank you to all of you who are part of the Patreon community. Thank you to all of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast. And I'd like to thank Comfort Fit for the music the song you're listening to is called Sorry. Uh, And thank you for helping us to contend for a better world, one conversation at a time.